Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Net Zero Nudge, a podcast box set series by Energy Voice in association with EY. I'm excited to welcome James Nicholson, partner at EY Parthenon, and Alex Okaneda, CEO and founder of Gore Street Capital. In this fifth episode, we're going to be looking at energy storage and flexibility. I think this is a really crucial part of the energy transition as we shift from that sort of traditional large-scale power generation, coal and gas, to, to, to renewable sources such as solar and, and particularly here in the UK, offshore wind. The common criticism leveled at renewable energy is, is that of intermittency. As we're all painfully aware, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And storing energy provides a means to balance out these flows. And it sounds straightforward, but it's actually, you know, can be really deeply challenging. It requires technological innovation and financial support. The most obvious example, it seems these days, is, is, is a battery. And as we shift to an increasingly electrified vehicle fleet, there are going to be some really interesting ideas in this space. Running an EV on power generated from rooftop solar is becoming more of a common notion. And the next step might be to turn this around and meet some of that domestic consumption from EVs. The uh, Ford F-150 Lightning, for instance, allows people to power their homes from their pickups in case of emergencies. And I think battery storage is also becoming increasingly common at a utility scale. And there's also been a, a rise in virtual power plants. California in, in August tapped domestic batteries to supply additional power to the grid. As we can see from these examples, the topic of energy storage quickly becomes a question of how we think about the grid and, and, I, and I suppose also how this thinking may change as we see generation diversified. I'm going to start with you, James. How do you think we can make the right choices when making plans for energy storage? Uh, and I suppose, how important is it at this stage to get it right? Well, thanks, Ed. I, I think, in, in short, it's important. But uh, I think you touched on some of the different applications and use cases in your in your introduction there. Um, whether the, the storage needs to be at a grid level for, for frequency moderation or for, for filling in for intermittent renewables uh, or security of supply for an industry or at home for, for charging a, a vehicle off a, a solar panel or even vehicle to grid in the future. You've got, you're asking the storage mechanism to do something different. Uh, and there are different attributes. You may be looking for the speed of its response, the amount of energy it can store, critically how long it can store it for, uh, how long that battery or that technology could last for, so what we call cycles, and what the conversion efficiency is. So starter for 10 is understand that link between the application, the duration and power requirement, and therefore the maturity of the technology. And we do talk about batteries, that's the sort of go-to, it's in the press, but energy storage has been around for a, for a long time in the form of pumped hydro, a reservoir or a, a dam to you and I. Um, but there's lots of others as well. Batteries don't work in every in every environment. They don't work in, in very hot or cold temperatures. They don't always last for, for long enough with today's technologies. Not everyone has a hill uh, or a mountain to pump water up. So you need lots of other things. And there are some really neat new technologies uh, coming through in the form of thermal, so latent heat or molten salts, uh, mechanical, which could be compressed air or CO2 gravity systems. Um, you've got chemical sort of gas, energy to gas, uh, which could include things like hydrogen, which is more mature. And then lots, just in the batteries itself, lots of other chemistries coming through um, away from lithium ion, which is probably around 95% of the of, of static storage for energy and batteries today. That's going to drop away. And there's there's lots of new technologies, but also lots of old ones, um, things like silicon iron and, and, and what we call LFP, which is, uh, have been around for a long time, but actually look like they could be more suitable for long duration storage. So there's lots out there, but you've got to match the technology 
to the application. Alex, what, what, what do you think about uh, making those right choices at this point? Yeah, it, it's hard. Right. You know, we're in a really interesting point here in the in the kind of global rush to renewables, where which has been dominated by solar and wind, right? Excellent uh, electricity generation source and cheaper and cheaper now, right? I mean, uh, by far, solar is by far one of the cheapest forms of electricity in many, many markets now, which was, it's really quite incredible when you think about that over the last 10 years, uh, the, the development of that industry. But then when you get to storage, which is an industry really... That, though, of course, as James rightly says, people have been storing electricity in many forms uh, since you know we discovered electricity and able started being able to to harness it. But with the uh, massive decline in battery costs, driven really by the growth of EV. Right, so energy storage as an industry uh, utilizes the massive cost reduction that's taken place uh, by the big Asian manufacturers scaling up to replace every combustion engine in a car with a battery. Right, and that's driven this huge cost decline and made then lithium-ion a economically viable technology to really help solve some of the challenges. Um, that actually renewables bring to a modern energy system. Right? As you rightly said at the start there, Ed, uh, the wind blows and the sun shines. Uh, renewables are very consistent over medium to long periods. Right, You know how much electricity you will generate, but on a second by second, minute by minute, it gets quite difficult. And um, you know the poor old grid operators who um, over the last you know, 50 to 100 years had a whole load of baseload power, coal, gas, and nuclear, you know, chugging out electricity, you know, had a pretty pretty understood demand side as well, um, and suddenly have to deal with a whole range of different technologies producing electricity in different ways at different times. And that's where storage comes in. So right now, uh, we've this really interesting dynamic where over the last six years here in the UK, storage has become this really significant asset class. And I would argue the critical one to enable our transition to a low carbon society. I mean, you mentioned sort of baseload there. And I think I suppose that's kind of really where that kind of challenge lies, isn't it? I mean, I think obviously, you know, we, we sort of see renewables as this lovely sort of addition. But it's, it's always that kind of question around baseload. Do you think that the, the sort of battery storage, do you think some sort of energy storage could in time become kind of uh, play that baseload role? Yeah. Um, right now, the storage market is really not um, there to deliver electricity um, in replacement for baseload. What energy storage asset owners such as ourselves are doing is balancing the grid. That's really where, where um, what the big service that we're providing and where, to be honest, we're making the majority of our revenue. You'd have to build out a lot of storage to be able to um, correctly um, get rid of all baseload power. It will happen. The biggest constraint is actually the grid itself, right? Getting the connections for our storage facilities is, is time consuming and difficult across all the markets that we work in. But, you know, we have an existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny, uh, before COVID, when people said, talked about, you know, we had to have a transition away from fossil fuels, it's going to take time, we need to recognize their importance in society. Um, but then, you know, everybody went back to their basement for two years, and we all seem to still kind of get on with things. So I, I've changed my mind, right? We do, we do need to kind of radically rethink how fast uh, we get rid of, um, you know, incredibly polluting uh, fossil fuels from our system. Um, and though it's a big lift to build out a lot of storage, we, we need to. James, what are your thoughts? Do you think, uh, what, how, where do you see sort of storage playing, or playing a role in future? I think at the moment, what's made battery storage in particular very interesting is that the, it's been driven in part by the electric vehicle sort of trend and the revolution. That's what's driven the the 
experience curve, the drops in cost, the improvements in things like energy density, so how many electrons you can get out of the battery. And that's made these things more economic and better, you know, just a better bet for storing something and, and releasing it later. But they've been produced for the car. Um, so uh, there's there's now a scarcity as we all decide to drive electric cars at sort of an increasingly sort of rapid switchover. And th- a lot of them at the moment, these what we call these high nickel lithium ion batteries have been developed with the idea of replacing the fuel tanks. So we've got these this sort of obsession with 400, 500 mile ranges, which means lots of lots of energy density quite a lot of rather expensive and scarce materials and some instability in the chemistries in those those batteries but they don't last very long so it doesn't really make them perfect candidates for for long form energy storage and and some of these grid balancing applications but it's it's done a job until now but i don't think those chemistries and those types of batteries will necessarily do the job in the, in the long term. So that idea of I'll use a battery in my car for a bit and after six years it's not so good, so I'll pop it on the side of my house and it'll be fine there. I'm, I'm not sure that's going to work out that well in the long term. I think there'll be a divergence in in the types of batteries that we, we use for that. Initially to these, these LFP type old tech batteries, but I think what we need now is the investment and the risk capital to flow into these new technologies around longer duration energy storage, whether that's batteries or whether that's other things, and try and get this experience curve to work, get the get the technology to improve, get the attributes to get better, get the manufacturing capacity and those economies of scale built in and those supply chains built. Um, and then we can start coming up with alternative technologies that are just better for long duration applications, whether that's at the home or in sort of off-grid industries or at grid scale. And that's going to become really important as that the proportion of renewable energy that exists in the grid system as that grows. Because I think today the problem is if we just put more and more renewables in and then in even in developed grids, but certainly away from northern hemisphere, very, very developed grids, if you just put lots of uh, existing lithium-ion batteries in there. I'm not sure that's the answer for stabilising grids. I think we're going to need those other long-form, long-duration storage technologies to come through, and that's going to need risk capital. I mean, Alex, you're 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 in you're in the game of uh, balancing the grid. You're kind of uh, you know doing this in, in in practice. Do you agree with uh, James's thoughts? Oh, I think we need a mix. We can see just even right now, right, with the macro uh, geopolitical events that. For proper energy security, we need to manage our energy system with multiple different applications and different technologies. Right now, all of Europe is 40% less gas than it had. And that's not going to change unless something changes in the Kremlin. Uh, and we can't, we, can't, we can't replace that before in terms of physically building that infrastructure, whether it be LNG or whether it be storage or it be renewables, you know, in, in two years. It takes years, as James rightly points out. But we need to approach the energy system in one that allows us to have long duration storage, maybe possible uses for hydrogen. How do we think about hydrogen into this mix? Lithium ion batteries to help balance as well as, you know, uh, provide electricity at peak times. Um, That mix becomes really important, um, not just for climate change, which we touched on earlier, but also for energy security, right? We need to be able to look to different methods uh, of generation from different technologies which work 
complementary, but at different times, perhaps, and for different things. I mean, I think there's a really kind of good discussion about that kind of, you know, the how, how, how things will develop. But just to kind of bring it back to the sort of the here and now, clearly, as you say, Alex, we're, we're in a sort of a point where, you know, the energy and, you know, the energy crisis is, is kind of a topic of, of substantial discussion politically, but also, you know, it, you know, in the pub, people are talking about the, the energy crisis. What should we do? What's the sort of the first near term step to, to sort of expand energy storage? What, what, what would be the sort of the first uh, the first target to look at to me it's the grid operator right <laughs> they're the ones who can get the connections right so um, if I look at Gore Street's portfolio right so we operate a portfolio GB Ireland Germany uh, and North America the biggest determinant of how fast we can get uh, storage built is not uh, capital that we have plenty of capital and the capital markets continue to deliver capital for our investment strategy um, the supply chain is tight, right? But it's, it's still available to us, right? We can buy at, the, at a certain price the amount of batteries that we want to buy. It is managing the grid operator who as it is at the center of this transition, right? They're the ones who have, who have been managing the grid for all of our societies. Um, and um, there's an enormous amount of pressure on them. Anything we can do to support their activities in terms of more resources, uh, more freedom to operate, uh, to allow them to get grid connections available to, uh, to players such as ours. James, what are your thoughts? I, I, think, that's, I think that's right. I think Alex are touching on something there around targeting. Um, I think that... At the moment, there there isn't a set of clear regulatory targets, uh, sort of regulatory policy and and mixed targets across, especially Europe and the UK. I think um, that would enable greater confidence in where this market goes next and and how how some of these uh, whether it's existing capacity starts to build up to the next stage and 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 we localize some of this stuff. I I do think we're at an interesting point with very high energy prices at the moment where a lot of I would imagine a lot of the the static storage and the the the, the battery solutions out there are making very good margins on the 15 minutes before we return other power stations on where you've got these very big gaps in the in the price curve. What I think the question is what happens is that price curve and that arbitrage opportunity starts to flatten out. What drives that? What are the dynamics that that help us understand that? But behind this initial wave of, of capital and the, the production capacity that exists, we're going to need a lot more, right? We're at the beginning of this, this curve. If you've got, what is it, 40 odd gigawatts of global grid storage today, you need something like, I don't know, three and a half, four terawatts of it by by 2050, right? That's a, a massive increase. It's unlikely we're going to be able to get that of lithium-ion batteries, so we're going to need some other things as well. So I think we need, I think we need greater clarity on the targets that are going to exist within these grids, what those mixes will look like, what the timescales are, and if you get that right and you get set the sort of north star, then I think the industry that sits behind it can start to to follow. Um, I'll, I'll leave Alex to comment on 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 the grid operator behaviour behind that. Uh, but I do think there's a there's a we, we need to get ahead of the curve in terms of the supply chain that's going to feed into it in the next five years. I suppose on that sort of question about the bankability, right? I mean, I think which I suppose sort of really kind of underpins the whole sort of discussion, doesn't it? About you know, and, and that that presumably requires all parts of the picture to kind of work in tandem, doesn't it? I mean, what 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 needs to change, do you think, James, to uh, to to provide that sort of investor confidence? I'm not sure. One of the questions we often ask ourselves actually is: Is it better to make and sell the battery, or own the battery and sell the electrons? 
or do you just view the battery as a backup asset that sits within a larger project and and, and it just becomes a, a grouped blended asset? And it's interesting when we when we work with battery makers and uh, and renewables projects, we get different answers and you start to realize actually it, there isn't a one size fits all. If you've got a, a stable, well-developed grid with good coverage across a region with lots of different generation opportunity options behind behind the grid, then you can turn other things on and off and you're, you're mostly playing in that arbitrage curve. A lot of the battery makers are starting to look not at those developed grids at the moment. They're looking at off-grid uh, applications and saying, how do I store it in microgrids? How do I store it at the side of industries? How do I look at communities that, that aren't powered by multiple sources? How do I start to solve for seasonal variation rather than daily variation and intermittency. And at the moment, I can see that attention shifting. And that's good. And that's exciting. That's going to fill a whole load of storage applications with with industry capital going behind it. I'm not sure what's going to move on developed grids in the Northern Hemisphere and whether we're in, are are we in a high point today? And it's good because we've got high energy prices and therefore good returns on those assets. Good for some, not for everybody. Um, uh, what what happens when those 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 price curves start to flatten and we see more and more renewables being built into the um in, in into the grid or is is that going to solve for itself that might be one for you alex well i, I think you, you touched on something there that i thought actually was interesting james i wonder if we, we should explore it a bit which is the manufacturing of these batteries right uh, it's um you know i've been uh, uh, investing in renewables for a long time because i'm old um but been through a few of these cycles and um back in 2007 um in the fund i was running uh, we were large investors into solar pv manufacturing so some of these new technology companies um um many in Silicon Valley and Germany and the like. And um, they all went, they all, they all failed. And they all failed because the, uh, um, the Chinese government decided it would, uh, it would own the solar PV manufacturing world and backed three big solar companies in China. And that has been really, it's been a, a, a remarkable achievement in terms of uh, how much they've lowered the price of solar and we should all thank them for it. But as we sit here in a kind of post-COVID world, hopefully, uh, and one with, you know, lots of geopolitical pressures. We're now looking at batteries and saying, well, where are all the batteries manufactured? Uh, what, you know, who owns that manufacturing? Is it, is it appropriate that we have a long supply chain out to Asia? And North America is a really interesting example in this, right? So the latest act, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, means that there is going to be a significant build-out of manufacturing, battery manufacturing capacity in North America. And there's already significant build-out uh, across mainland Europe. UK is, is a little bit behind uh, the curve on this um, for probably many, many governmental reasons. Um, but, you know, I think that interesting point about, you know, how do we make sure that we can get the batteries onto our grid? Who's manufacturing them? What's the security of that supply chain before you even get to price and the like? So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a really interesting dynamic about the idea of globalization and how it feeds in here into our supply chains and what we need to do to actually make sure that we have certainty of supply against these critical assets. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, I think it's a fascinating dynamic. It's really, it's really tested the sort of global economy and the idea of, of, of ever, ever increasing globalization. So it, it's un, undoubtable that the, the battery industry has grown up and been dominated by a relatively small number of very large Asian corporates. And even the build out of most of the battery production infrastructure that exists in Europe has been from that corporate money. There are a few exceptions and a few startups and scale-ups uh, here, but it's it's very capitally intensive, eye-wateringly so, and it is still relatively thin margins. So it does sort of suit that 
consolidated group of very powerful players. What's really interesting is if you look at electrochemicals, so all the different batteries, you can st even the R&D and the new experiments, and the new industrialization efforts that are going on, you can see them clustered in the East. And, and a lot of that on a, on a global view still looks like where they're leading. And the, the West Europe and the US seems to be slowly catching up with building more battery capacity, uh, but isn't necessarily running that industry. If you look at what's happening in Europe and the US, you can see a lot of that battery capacity being built out, um, often by those, those Asian large market leaders. Two things have happened in, in both the US and across Europe. Firstly, there's been a very late realization that to secure those scarce materials, those supply chains, you need to look upstream from battery manufacturing into all those critical minerals. And there you can see that, that Asia, and in particular China, really stole a march on the way it was refining those midstream battery metals and things like nickel sulfate and, and, and lithium hydroxide and things like that. So the, the West is a long way behind on that. More promising, perhaps, for, for you, from, from Europe and the States is they are building that battery capability, but it's actually those other technologies. If I look forward to the, these novel long-duration technologies around the mechanical, the chemical, the, the, the thermal ideas, that's where that innovation still exists. And you can see project after project through, through the labs up to industrialization starting to happen across Europe, which shows that's exciting. The innovation's still there. Um, you wind forward and you look at what the, the, the recent Inflation Reduction Act in the US does. That is incredibly ambitious and really all-encompassing across a whole range of technologies. It's, it's America first. It's definitely protectionist to a point. It is about localizing those industries beyond the R&D. But it perhaps shows the rest of us the way of what is necessary to think about the entire energy system across mobility and across storage and grids and, and residential usage and say, we need to replace an old carbon-based society and energy system with these new things. And we need to think about it economically and socially and geopolitically and look at the whole thing. Uh, that, that IRA um, legislation is is the most all-encompassing I think any of us have, have seen. But you certainly got a splintering, go back to the, the original question, away from this pure global model, very much to almost three regions now with, with quite different characteristics. It has been fascinating, hasn't it? The, you know, the, I suppose the last two years, kind of COVID, the you know shutting of the Suez Canal for a week, you know, things like that have, have I think really sort of highlighted some of those kind of concerns about globalization, and I think also that kind of question around that sort of near monopoly that China has on on, on processing chemicals. I think I think we're going to take a break for a moment, and then we'll we'll, we'll catch right up. In the midst of an industry undergoing fundamental change. EY teams offer deep sector knowledge, highly integrated solutions and a global EY network to help you reshape your business for the future. This time for disruption is also a time of opportunity for organisations to get ahead of change. Decarbonisation, digitalisation, cost pressures and geopolitical uncertainty are just some of the forces transforming the energy and resources industry. EY Energy and Resources teams can help you focus on the structure, services, technologies and capabilities needed to create long-term value and bring you towards the future of energy. Together we can unlock the opportunities of an uncertain future and build a better working world. So welcome back. I mean, I think 
we 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 really sort of touched on some of that innovation there, and I, and and I suppose you know looking at how innovation is changing and becoming more important, I suppose as we are moving more into uh, into into energy storage, is the primary motivation lower costs, or is there a sort of like an energy security challenge? And uh, how do you how do you sort of balance those uh, those, those sort of arguments, uh, Alex? I'm gonna I'm gonna do. You, what do you think? Is it is it energy security? Is it is it lower costs? Are the two mutually exclusive? They're not mutually exclusive, right? So we need to have sustainable development of the, of this, right? So to be sustainable, we need to be able for society to bear the cost of it. <laughs> so, it, so what we've done as a society over the last 20 years with the build-out of renewables is that we as a society said it is to the benefit of society that we will incur a cost to get solar and wind built, to allow them to get to a scale where we can drive efficiencies and costs down, and then we will have a self, a kind of a, a self-fulfilling industry which which allows that to be built out and replace uh, pollutants, um, and that's the right decision. It was a, you know governments do those kind of decisions about many different things, right? They've done it about military, for instance, or telecommunications, and here we did it on the energy side. So we need to keep doing that, um, and we need to make sure that society is is appropriately situated to be able to bear the cost of these new technologies, which are for the benefit of us both on the climate side and on the energy security. I think it's really interesting about storage, which um, really has had no subsidy in it. Right. So if we look at uh, if you look at the UK example, um, the massive build out of storage from about 2016 on, and the government wasn't involved. Right. There wasn't when we our assets we we started building in 2017. We got nothing from the government for them. We, we were selling services to the national grid in a commercial auction, and uh, you know that has worked really really well. Uh, minimum burden on the taxpayer. And we've built out a critical part of the of the asset class. So cost is important because if we don't get the right cost, society will have to uh, to suffer that cost. Um, right now, at the point we're in the cycle, um, solar is competitive, wind's competitive, storage is competitive, hydrogen is is not right. And so there's there's a way to go to understand how hydrogen is going to, uh, to to work here. But the the cost needs to be accounted for. But it's there, and we're being very successful at, at, at accounting for it, and still having the right build out. And, and James, I mean, looking at that sort of innovation side, you know, you, you've mentioned some alternatives. Alex just uh, mentioned hydrogen, which obviously is a is a, is a quite a hot topic. But I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier on, right, there are other, other ones, you know, ceramics, molten salt, things like that. How quickly is is sort of progress coming in terms of sort of driving that innovation? And and what I suppose what do they need to compete? Cost is important. Uh, it is without a doubt. It is important, and the balance of that and how how governments play and subsidise that, I think, is really important. I think the the example Alex mentioned there about renewables, they were really heavily subsidised, but not forever. And what the subsidy gave was it, it, it attracted private capital, it attracted industry, it it helped big projects grow up, and as they grew up, and we built more more and more wind turbines and big wind firms. The technology got better. The conversion efficiency got better. The scale economics got better because you could you weren't doing things on one-offs or in more small volumes. You were doing them at proper professionalized industrial scale, and that's what always needs to happen. It needs to happen if it's a if it's lightweight PV solar that can go on the other roofs. We can't do with heavy silicon-based solar. It's going to need to happen whether it's blue or green or grey hydrogen. It's going to have needs to happen in in carbon capture. It's has to happen in all these other forms of batteries. There's an initial cost. It's not cheap to get from the lab through scale up to your first factory. But then it gets better. 
because that first factory gets better and the five that follow are much better. And once you've got that and that cost comes down, the adoption starts to cycle, the subsidies can be removed and, and off you go. You know, the, the, the first, if you, if you go back to the, the first internal combustion engine, it's hellishly complicated and would have been very, very expensive. But like everything we've put in the car and everything we've put in the grid, those have got cheaper over time. So just, you just have to remember that there's that curve to get over. The, 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 the battery stuff can't stop. And I touched on this point earlier. We, we, can't, we don't have the raw materials and the, the global resources and the energy intensity across the world to keep relying on one form of batteries to provide the energy storage forever, right? There's not enough of some of these scarce materials and the energy intensity required to turn these materials into batteries is in itself very high. So we've got to find better ways of doing this when we are factorially scaling the amount of storage we're going to need. Hydrogen has, has, has been talked about for a long time. Uh, it's been more and more exciting. It feels like it's tantalizingly close now uh, to things starting to take off in Europe, but it's it's going to need a lot of help, and and the same is true with that. These 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 other these other technologies we talk about. Some of them feel sometimes a little bit like a, a GCSE physics project, but that's how a lot of ideas start. So so some of them will fall over, and some of them will some of them will carry on and, and work through and find their own applications. My my advice to to governments is, energy storage is a is a na national or a regional challenge. It's, it's too big for a single company. It doesn't exist within a single entity or asset. It is a system and a very broad and complex one with lots of complex mixes. It has become, and perhaps always was, about the way that nation states and trading blocks competed with one another. So there isn't really a non-interventionalist approach available to us here. It is, it is going to require the direction setting and the convening power and sometimes the financial muscle of nation states and, and, and allies and trading blocks to come together and get some of these things off the ground. And it's already a highly interventionist approach. You mentioned earlier the subsidies that some companies, uh, some countries are putting, putting into chosen industries, whether batteries or otherwise. And you can see what we, we mentioned with the Inflation Reduction Act earlier. That's kind of the game we're playing. So you can't stand on the sidelines looking at it, hoping that there was a there's just a free market option. It's probably not available because the economics require subsidy and require convening. Alex, I mean, I think you know James has uh, you know sort of brought in that kind of role of sort of an interventionist government, and and, and I suppose that this is one of those things that we kind of come back to quite a lot in this kind of discussion around the energy security kind of debate, and 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 I suppose you know also sort of plays into the energy transition and and the sort of the role of government. Is there, is there something that government could be doing? I mean, you, you've mentioned that, you know, sort of energy storage thus far has, has, has not required uh, that sort of intervention. But is there, is, is there if, if, if you were to sort of, you know, sit down with the minister and say, you know, you know, this is my, this is the top of my list. What, what would you, what would you say to encourage that sort of uh, growth in, uh, in energy storage? So it might sound odd as a, you know, CEO of a private equity fund, but, um, you know, government intervention, government is a force for good. Right. I'm a believer in big government and the government to make actions uh, to support, uh, you know, the important things in our society. If I look at, if we think about particular things here, um, mentioned before, the grid operator, how to help uh, the grid operator get more storage built. We've talked about it before. How do we get a shorter supply chain in terms of having manufacturing here in the UK? If government wanted to spend money, that would be a great place to spend money. Right. That, these are not 
you know, uh, small amounts of capital required to build uh, battery manufacturing, and they're complex. Um, but exactly where government should get involved, big projects like that to actually shorten our supply chain. In the immediate terms, is there something they can do? Sterling being, being low like this is going to present challenges to us. Uh, we buy batteries in sterling, but it's a USD basically uh, market. Um, and, uh, you know, sterling's taken a big hit. Um, and so what does that mean, right? How, do we need to get more revenue here in, in GB for the same system because it costs us more? Um, so government should also look at that, right? How can they support us given some of the, uh, some of the big kind of changes that have taken place in, uh, in, in the capital markets uh, alongside currency? It's only really now, I think, given what the, the level of crisis that we're in around energy, that it's on everybody's minds. It's really amazing. I mean, I've been investing in energy for 20 years. Um, I, you know, I teach around energy policy and the like, and you know, it, it wasn't like we were the, you know, the, the cool kids, right? Uh, you know, no, no one wanted to talk to us. But we can see it now in our society. We see government has to do things. And the reality of it, uh, even with the, the government policy announced on the 150 billion uh, into the energy to support uh, people's energy bills, 10 to 15% of households in the UK will make a decision between heat and food. I mean, that's really, really serious. And to prevent that, we need government intervention to support those, those people. We need government plans to make it easier to build things at the right price with the right technology. Uh, so government government needs to be a major actor here. And, and I suppose, you know, sort of sticking with that kind of question about, you know, sort of next steps, you know, what do you think industry should do, right? Looking at the sort of the, 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 the playing field as it is now, looking at this, you know, sort of FX challenges, looking at, you know, potentially, you know, the government has obviously been saying some some opposite things about maybe uh, easing environmental checks, which, you know, maybe may, may, may help the energy industry in that regard. What, how, how, how should industry sort of seize the, 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 the moment as it is now? I mean, industry's there to seize it. Right. I mean, you know, if I look at our progression, so Gore Street, um, you know, we listed um, a fund um, on the London Stock Exchange back in May 2018, uh, inventing the asset class of energy storage for the public and uh, for the public investor. You know, we uh, we IPO'd at a, a modestly sized 30 million pounds in a, in a process relatively traumatic for everybody involved. Uh, but it was important for us to get it on the market. Uh, to demonstrate um, what we could do and why this asset class would be important to investors, and now you know we have a you know a market cap uh, you know above 500 million. Uh, there's other funds uh, which you know claim to do the same kind of thing, which are also on the market. So industry is there. Capital markets are, are giving are, are providing capital for us to deploy. Battery manufacturers are scaling up to get us uh, cheaper and cheaper batteries, and actually more efficient batteries as well. Right, it's James touched on it earlier, but it's really interesting things going on in the chemistry. Um, so I think industry's there. We need to have uh, proper support from government at the, at the places of pain, the grid, the, the, the long supply chain, and you know, some of the macro effects of kind of uh, difficult financial circumstances in the global economy. James, uh, a final word on, on, on what you think uh, the role for, for, for industry may be. Uh, I'm, I'm perhaps a little more downbeat in some areas, actually. I, I think that the, the capital markets are working to a point, uh, but not as, not as well as, as I'd like to see them work. I think there's still a, a general structural flocking towards uh, infrastructure assets or asset-like technologies. And what we're looking at here is actually an, an industrialization play. This is around commercializing big 
asset heavy industries. Um, and I think, I hope that the capital markets can can rediscover on uh, mass some more of that risk appetite for for industrialization investments. I, I don't think that's where it is now. It's not. It's not where it is today. Uh, and sufficient volume to help us to get through this and, and really challenge on the global scale. I think to to businesses, to to industry more broadly, um, I think we've got lots of exciting fast growth businesses. Uh, some will do well, some will not. Uh, some will get snapped up. I think the bigger challenge is for today's large established corporates, and that the, the energy transition and the path to net zero is essentially, when you think about it, the movement away from a carbon supply chain to a non-carbon supply chain. But it's still a material supply chain. They've just changed. We're still taking stuff out of the ground, out of the planet. We're doing something to them in refining and rather than distilling or whatever it is. And we're assembling them using energy and labor and skill and technologies. Today's large businesses need to recognize that their supply chains and their business models are changing quite rapidly. So my advice to them is take risks, think outside the four walls of your company today and make partnerships, work in ecosystems, even be prepared to give those new suppliers, those new exciting companies and technologies, the benefit of the doubt to take more portfolio options. Because that that kind of thing is going to help the capital markets get behind and take those industrial risks. It'll help those small, exciting companies grow up and get bought or flourish or become tomorrow's giant corporates. Um, but I think that's got to work in, in in tandem. It's got to work together constructively. But it's not just a, chain, a couple of changes at the top of today's energy systems. It's a fundamental end-to-end change of, of global supply chains. Um, so... I think industry and capital markets and government, it's its those three things. Um, and without them working in tandem, what happens is just a series of catch-22s and everyone waits for everyone else. So cautiously optimistic, <laughs> but, a, but a little bit of a way to go. Fantastic. Well, listen, Alex, James, thanks so much for, for, for taking the time to, to share some really interesting thoughts. I think I think it's been a really interesting chat. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you. Please let us know what you think of the ideas we've raised. You can email outloud at energyvoice.com and if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry you can email outloud at energyvoice.com too you may already know that every week the energy voice team get together to talk over the important energy stories in our regular podcast episodes so please do follow energy voice out loud in apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to get this free essential briefing every friday this is the fifth part of Net Zero Nudge. We'll be back for one bonus episode aiming to tie some of these thoughts together and, and maybe look to the future as well. But for today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.